in 2012, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip with a group uh, from my church to Ethiopia. We went to the capital city, uh, Addis, to partner with a local church to do ministry in their community. Our team had to take a flight, a 14-hour flight from Seattle to Dubai, where we spent the night before flying from Dubai into Ethiopia the next morning. And so because we had to stay a night in Dubai, of course, we had to go through customs. And the custom agents there followed the same rule uh, that every custom agent in every country follows, which is don't show any warmth, don't smile, ever. So we, our team had to make our way through the crowded uh, custom, uh, customs process. One of our team members made it through first, and he turned around and wanted to capture the moment. He turned around and he looked back over the scene, crowded scene, rest of the team making their way through the customs. So he pulls out his camera to take a picture. Unfortunately, he wasn't paying attention because there was a sign a mere few feet above his head that had a picture of a camera crossed out. So you can imagine, as I'm still going through customs, the feeling that came over my body as I looked at my teammate taking a picture of this whole scene, all these customs agents and peoples with the sign above his head. I mean, it did not matter what language you spoke. The message was clear. Don't take pictures here. As I looked, I just felt the panic coming over my body, and I wanted to yell. I wanted to say, stop, look, pay attention. This was my first experience in the Middle East. Thankfully, it wasn't my last. Could have been. By God's grace, no one in authority seemed to notice what my teammate was doing, and we were able to make it through unscathed. I bring this up because this morning we're talking about the importance of paying attention and the consequences when we don't pay attention. Driver's ed instructors know this theme very well. They want their students to pay attention to what they teach, but more importantly, they want them to pay attention on the road. What is a big problem today? It's distracted driving. Right? We want people who are driving to pay attention to the road. And what do driver's ed instructors do? They show pictures of the potential consequences of not paying attention to try to encourage and exhort the students to pay attention. Pay attention or else. Can you think of a time when you have encouraged someone or exhorted someone, urged someone to pay attention to someone or something? Maybe it's your brother or sister or a friend, a teammate. If you're a parent, maybe your child, a teacher, one of your students. If you're a coach, one of your players. Maybe it's your coworker or your spouse. All of us can think of a time when we've wanted someone else to pay attention. How frustrating is it for you when you tell someone to pay attention and they don't? What are your thoughts when that happens? How do you feel? What do you say? Or what are you at least tempted to say when someone experiences consequences for failing to pay attention? Well, thankfully, the Lord is immeasurably more gracious and patient than we are, yet we still need to ask, what does he tell us to pay attention to? And how well do we pay attention to what he wants us to pay attention to? 
Brothers and sisters, many things in life require your attention. But what is most important? Well, the book of Hebrews brings clarity in regard to this question. Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Before I read the text, I'll give you an outline of what we will see in these verses. In verse 1, we see an exhortation. In verse 2, in the first part of verse 3, we read a warning. And then in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, we see confirmation. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I encourage you to follow along. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The first thing we see is an exhortation. Our passage begins with the word therefore, connecting what was written in chapter 1 with the exhortation at the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore is an important word in Scripture. It's an indicator to get our attention. When we see the word therefore, the author is trying to help us follow his train of thought. He's trying to help us follow the argument that he is making. He's trying to help us see how he is connecting what was said previously with what he's about to say. So it is a very helpful word. In chapter 1, we read about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The author taught that Jesus is superior to the prophets whom we read about in the Old Testament scriptures. Moreover, he is superior to angels. The author impresses on us that Jesus is superior. He is, in fact, supreme. He is the greatest. In light of the fact that Jesus is supreme, that he is superior to prophets and angels, the author gives us an exhortation. So what was the exhortation? What did he encourage and urge the readers of the letter to do? The first exhortation in the book of Hebrews is that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard is that God has spoken definitively by his Son. God has revealed himself. He has revealed his will. He has revealed the way of salvation. He has revealed how we are to live. He has revealed certain things about the future by his Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must pay attention and listen carefully. Jesus taught the same thing. In three of the four Gospels, we read about a particular parable that's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the sower. A better name for the parable might be the parable of the soils. 
Jesus described a man who went out and sowed or scattered seed on four different types of soil, hoping to reap a harvest. The first type of soil was a hard path, a hard beaten path. And what happened to that seed? Well, it didn't take. And the birds came and ate the seed before it could produce anything of value. Then there was the seed that fell on rocky ground. While that did go into the ground, it had no depth of, of soil. And it sprouted up, but then it was quickly scorched by the sun. It did not last. And then there was seed that was spread amongst thorns. And while it grew up, it was choked out by the thorns. And then there was a seed that landed on good soil. And the seed that landed on good soil produced a plentiful harvest. When the disciples asked Jesus the meaning of the parable, he explained that the different soils represent the different ways people hear and respond to the gospel. And so the first example, the seed that landed on the path, is those who hear but don't understand. It's like what they've heard has been taken from them immediately. The seed that falls into the rocky soil are, represents those who hear and respond with joy, but when persecution comes, when opposition comes, they abandon the gospel. They don't consider the gospel to be worth the trials and the troubles and the difficulty and the hardship. And then the, the seed that lands in the thorns are those who hear and respond, but then the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches begin to choke out what has come from the seed so that it is not ultimately fruitful. And the seed that lands in the good soil are those who hear and respond. And the word produces good fruit in their lives and it begins to multiply as they too minister the word to others. What kind of soil are you? How well do you hear and respond to the message? Is the word being choked out in your life? Is the word producing good fruit? Is there a harvest that is coming in your life because of the way that you hear and respond to the gospel? Hearing the message that God has spoken by his son is not to be a completed action in the past, but an ongoing practice in our lives. We need to continually pay close attention to what we have heard. And what happens when we don't pay attention to what we have heard? We drift away from it. Slowly, gradually, and at times, imperceptibly, we drift away. Drifting away is easy. It doesn't require any effort. All you have to do is do nothing. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis offers powerful insights into the temptation to drift away. If you're not familiar with his book, it is a fictional work whereby he imagines a senior, more experienced demon offering advice to a younger, newer demon on how to tempt people, lead them away from the Lord and into sin. 
the older demon is called Screwtape, and he writes to his nephew, Wormwood. He's trying to teach him the ways of Satan, how to lead people away and to uh, get them to leave the enemy. The enemy, from their perspective, of course, is the Lord. So why did he write this book? Why does he write, did he write this book this, and imagine this conversation between a senior demon teaching and instructing a, a junior demon? Well, he's trying to help Christians see and understand the way that Satan and his demons might work so that we will be aware, so that we will be on guard, so that we will rightly fight the spiritual battle. And in letter 12, we read about this temptation to drift away. And the senior demon, Screwtape, is trying to encourage the junior demon to lead the, the man to whom he's been assigned, who has professed faith in Christ, to slowly drift away. He says, basically, don't, don't get caught up in trying to convince him to commit some spectacular, obvious sin. Just do these little things to, to help him gradually drift away, to separate him from the enemy who is the Lord. I just want to share a few parts of this letter, letter 12. I wish I could read the whole thing, but I'm just going to pick a few parts to read to you. Here's what we read. My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is lest in attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line in which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than the, that, that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. A few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention in his prayers, but now you will find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. As this condition becomes more fully established, you will, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. And he goes on to encourage him to just try to lead him to commit these small sins. So Lewis writes, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect 
is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I love how he talks about the small sins that can separate us gradually over time from the Lord. I think this is a good depiction of what we read here in Hebrews about this potential, this danger of slowly drifting away from the Lord. If we are not actively and intentionally paying attention, our inclination will be to drift away. We will seek comfort, pleasure, and relief in the things that distract us from paying attention. And when we become bored with our distractions, we will invent new ones. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you feel it? Do you feel that tendency in your heart to drift, to wander, to leave? How might you be tempted to drift from what you have heard? When your life gets busy, when you are stressed, when the pressure is on, when there are many demands on your time and attention, what gets choked out? How often do you reflect on the message that you have heard, the most important message? How often do you meditate on the wonderful, glorious, life-changing truth of God's word? The exhortation to pay attention is for all of us. The exhortation is followed by a warning. The importance of heeding the exhortation in verse 1 is seen in the warning in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. In other words, pay attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it or else there will be consequences. He said the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Here we see the reason the author of Hebrews placed such an emphasis on angels in chapter one. He hits on how the son is superior to the angels in several different ways. By the end, you're kind of like, okay, we get it. Son, better than the angels. We're with you. We're tracking. But here he gives the reason as to why he placed such an emphasis on the son, Jesus Christ, being superior to the angels. The message declared by angels is a reference to the law that the Lord gave to his people at Mount Sinai, which we read about in Exodus and Leviticus. The Jewish Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews was written associated angels with the old covenant and the law given to the Israelites through Moses. We see this in a few places in the New Testament. For example, we see this connection in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, 
where Paul wrote, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In Acts chapter 7, verse 3, Stephen indicted his fellow Jews by saying, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In the law, the Lord revealed himself to his people. He revealed his will for their lives. He revealed to them how they could live in right relationship with him and enjoy his presence in their midst. He revealed to them his values, his commands through the law. And the law was delivered through angels. The message delivered by the angels proved to be reliable. And every transgression or act of disobedience received a just retribution. The Lord gave his people commands. He gave them his laws. And he also prescribed punishments for when they broke the law, when they disobeyed his commands. And the nature of God's law, contrary to the surrounding cultures, was that punishment was proportionate to the offense. They were not to be overly harsh in their punishments. But they were not to fail to punish the guilty either. Those who disobeyed God's law on an individual level were to be punished, and their punishment was just. But we also see that this happened to the people of Israel as a whole. We see time and time again that the people of Israel broke the covenant that the Lord established with them. He established this covenant, this promise relationship, whereby they would be his people and he would be their God. He would dwell among them, richly blessing them, providing for all their needs, protecting them against their enemies. They were to live the good life, blessed by God with him living among them. And yet they continually, repeatedly broke the covenant, disobeying his commands, worshiping all kinds of false gods, committing all kinds of immorality, perpetuating all kinds of injustice. The Lord warned them time and time again to repent, to be faithful to him, to honor the covenant, to obey his law. And yet through their re repeated disobedience and breaking of the law, they were punished. Ultimately, they were removed from the land, the good land the Lord had given them. This happened in two stages. It was first the northern kingdom of Israel was removed through the Assyrians. The Lord sent the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom and remove them from the good land. And then he sent the Babylonians to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah to remove them from the land. The people of Israel experienced exile. They experienced punishment and consequences for their failure to pay attention to the message that was delivered to them by angels. Because they failed to pay attention, because they disobeyed the commands, they experienced just retribution. So what was the point? The message that was delivered by angels was disobeyed, and the people experienced just retribution. How much more the message delivered, not by angels, but by the Son, 
Jesus Christ. In these last days, the Lord has spoken by his son who is far superior to angels. If God's people were punished for failing to heed the message delivered by angels, what will happen to us if we drift from the message of his son? If they were judged for failing to pay attention to the law, we will not escape judgment for neglecting the message of salvation delivered by the son. The implication then for those who drift away from the gospel, the message of salvation is that they will receive just retribution or judgment. The subject of God's judgment is not an easy one. It's difficult. It's difficult to think on and reflect on the reality of God's judgment, that there will be a time when everyone will be judged and some will be sent to eternal punishment in hell. But as difficult as the subject is, we cannot ignore God's judgment. We must reflect on it with humility and sober-mindedness. In the Old Testament, we see many examples of God's judgment. We see it in the very beginning when God judged Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, for their disobedience to him. They experienced God's judgment when they were removed from the special place of God's dwelling, the Garden of Eden. Then we see many more examples of God rendering judgment. Time and time again, God judged those who were guilty. He judged Cain for killing his brother Abel. He judged the whole earth through the flood, preserving Noah and his family. Time and time again, God renders judgments. We also see many examples of warnings regarding God's judgments. God's prophets warn time and time again, if you disobey him, you will experience his judgment. One of the ways that the Lord's judgment is spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures is with the term, the day of the Lord, or the day. So for example, we see this in Isaiah chapter 13, verse six, which says, wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. And in Joel chapter 1 15, we read, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Sometimes the day of the Lord referred to judgment on specific people that occurred at a point in time in history. The day of the Lord will come. His judgment will come. And then that came to pass. His people experienced his judgment. But sometimes the day of the Lord seemed to allude to a future time of judgment. At the opening of the New Testament, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness before the baptism of Jesus. And he affirmed the view that a future time of judgment was coming. Matthew 3, 7 says, but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Numerous times throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus warned about a final judgment. Indeed, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus described the final judgment in terms of separating those who belong to him and those who don't. At the end of the, that passage, he said that the wicked will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so when the author of Hebrews spoke about judgment, 
and not escaping judgment if we neglect the message of salvation, he was speaking in a way that was consistent with the whole testimony of Scripture. All of Scripture testifies to the reality that God is a righteous judge. He is the judge of all the earth. And he is the judge who punishes the guilty. I also think it is important for us to remember that the church has affirmed the reality of a final judgment across cultures and throughout the generations. We see this in the Apostles' Creed, which may have originated in the second century, but developed into its, the form that it's in now by the fifth century. Regarding Jesus, the Apostles' Creed states, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I bring this up because the idea of God's judgment is becoming increasingly unpopular in our modern Western culture. And I specify that it's unpopular in our modern Western culture because it's not actually unpopular in most cultures throughout history. In a conversation about hell and God's judgment, a pastor named Stephen Um, who is Korean, speaks about the fact that in Eastern cultures, people generally don't have a, fa- a problem with the fact that God judges people. They don't have a problem with God punishing people. As a matter of fact, he said, what people are more likely to have a problem with is God actually forgiving wicked sinners. That's a bigger stumbling block. And so I, I say this just so that we don't put an undue importance on our particular social location. Just because people in modern Western societies have a problem with God's judgment, it doesn't mean that it's not true. The entire testimony of Scripture speaks to the reality that God is the righteous judge of the earth who punishes the guilty. Throughout church history, the church has always testified to the reality of God's judgment. I bring this up because of the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the church throughout history, across cultures, should impress upon us the certainty of God's judgment. Though it is an unpleasant subject that can cause us emotional distress, we cannot ignore it. We cannot push it aside. We cannot simply say, well, I don't like it. Therefore, it is not true. We have to see the truth. We have to come to terms with the truth. The truth about God's judgment should humble us. We are those who deserve to be judged. It should cause us to be sober-minded, recognizing that there are people who are facing God's judgment. Even our enemies, people we don't like, people who make our lives more difficult, are facing an eternity apart from the Lord in hell, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot dismiss the warning in verses 2 and 3. So we are given an exhortation and then a warning of the consequences if we fail to heed the exhortation. Finally, in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, we have confirmation. The author describes how the gospel, the message of salvation, has been confirmed. 
The confirmation of the gospel serves to substantiate the exhortation and the warning. We need to heed the warning. We need to heed the exhortation that precedes the warning because the gospel is true. The gospel has been confirmed by the Lord. How has the gospel been confirmed? Well, first it was declared by the Lord. When Jesus began his public ministry, he proclaimed the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. And he unpacked this message further in his teaching. We see this, for example, in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, we read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then skipping ahead to verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The gospel was proclaimed by Jesus. Jesus taught that eternal life is found in him. All who repent of their sins and believe in him will receive eternal life. But those who do not believe, those who neglect this message of salvation, the gospel will experience condemnation and the wrath of God. Jesus proclaimed the gospel clearly and emphatically. Friend, if you are not a Christian, our hope and prayer for you today is that you will hear the message of salvation, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that you will hear about how Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners such as us. We who are gathered here are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, who deserve God's judgment. But God in his mercy, in his kindness, has provided a way for sinners such as us to be forgiven of our sins and receive eternal life rather than the judgment we deserve. And he did so without compromising his justice, without compromising his righteousness, without compromising the fact that he is a righteous judge. And he did so by sending Jesus Christ into the world, the Son of God, to be the Savior of the world, to save the world by taking God's punishment for our sins in our place. You see, Jesus went to the cross willingly to take the punishment we deserve for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced God's wrath in our place for our sins so that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness 
and the gift of eternal life. Jesus rose from the grave. He was vindicated. Through his resurrection, God proclaimed that his sacrifice was sufficient. Sufficient to pay the price for all our sins, past, present, and future. If you're not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Christ, to go to him, to be saved. When you go to Christ, you will be reconciled to God. You will know him as your loving father. You will experience eternal life. You will be freed from the wrath to come. You will not be subject to condemnation in the final judgment. If you're not a Christian, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. So the first way that the message was confirmed was through the proclamation of Jesus. And secondly, the message, message was attested to and passed on by those who heard. This refers to the apostles and others who heard the message firsthand from Jesus. Many disciples, men and women, heard Jesus' teaching firsthand, witnessed his death on the cross, and saw him after he was raised from the dead. There is an emphasis in the New Testament on the validity of the gospel because of the eyewitnesses. Listen to what Luke wrote at the beginning of his gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We are able to have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught because of the many eyewitnesses who have attested to the truthfulness of the gospel and who all proclaimed the same gospel message. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses. He authorized them to be his messengers, to proclaim the gospel message on his behalf so that the message that was proclaimed was true and those who heard could be certain that it was true. In Acts chapter five, the apostles were arrested for preaching this gospel and were questioned by the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And when they were questioned, they were threatened. But Peter said, we have to obey God not man. We have to preach this gospel message. And he said, we're eyewitnesses. We've seen this firsthand. This is true. We can't deny what we have seen and heard. The amazing thing about the witnesses who saw and heard firsthand is that they were willing to suffer and die rather than forsake the gospel, the message of salvation. It's one thing to say, this message that I proclaim to you is true. It's another thing entirely to say, I'm willing to die rather than say it's not true. That is what we see with the apostles and many of the eyewitnesses. 
It's not only that they said this gospel message is true. We have seen and heard firsthand. It's that they were willing to die. They were willing to suffer and die rather than deny the truthfulness of the gospel. Many of the firsthand witnesses suffered persecution and were put to death because they would not say, it's not true. So this message has been attested to us by those who saw and heard firsthand. Jesus proclaimed the gospel message. Those who heard the message from Jesus and witnessed his death and resurrection confirmed the gospel message. Moreover, they were willing to suffer and die for that message. But that's not all. The third way the message was confirmed was that God the Father bore witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. He did so through signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. He did so through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus performed many signs and wonders confirming the truthfulness of his message. But that was not all. God also bore witness by signs and wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Spirit in the early church. Again, we read about this in the book of Acts. In Acts 5.12, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And in verse 14, we read, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Despite the fact that the, the Christians were marginalized, that they were looked down upon, Many people were coming to faith in the Lord. Many people were witnessing the signs and the wonders and the miracles, and that is why the church miraculously grew in the first, test, in the first century. The church miraculously grew in the first century as the Lord attested to the truthfulness of the gospel through these signs and wonders and miracles. Why should we listen to the exhortation in verse 1? Why should we take seriously the warning in verses 2 and 3? Because the gospel, the message of salvation, has been confirmed beyond any shadow of a doubt. So, how do we reflect on and apply this exhortation to pay much closer attention to what we have heard? What does it mean to pay attention? What is the evidence that you are or that you are not paying attention? Paying attention begins with continually remembering and applying the glorious truth of the gospel to your own heart and mind. How well do you know the gospel? How well do you apply the gospel to your own thinking, to your own attitudes, to your own words and to your own deeds? When you're struggling, are you able to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and then apply it to your own heart, to your own life? Do you think on this regularly? Do you meditate on the glorious truth of the gospel and all that comes with it? Paying attention requires that you remember, meditate on, and apply the gospel to your own heart and mind. Paying attention also involves seeking to understand and apply the implications of the gospel to every area of your life as Jesus calls you to follow him. How well do you pay attention to his teaching and commands? And are you seeking to submit yourself to Christ in all things? One of the greatest challenges for us as Christians, as the church, is our blind spots in regards to what Christ teaches and commands and how we live. Brothers and sisters, sometimes there's a disconnect Sometimes there's a disconnect between what Christ teaches and how we live. We need to pay careful attention 
to what he teaches, to what he commands, and then see and examine if we're actually applying it rightly to our own lives. Are we seeking to bring the entirety of our lives into conformity with his will as his followers, as his disciples? Or do we have these significant blind spots? Or do we hear it, agree with it, and then just go and live our own way? How do you apply his teaching to every area of your life? How do you use your time? How do you conduct yourself at your place of work? How do you raise your children? How do you spend your money? How do you apply his teaching to these areas of your life? What about his commands to forgive? He emphasized the need to forgive others when they sin against you. Do you pay attention to his command to forgive? Or do you withhold forgiveness? What about his commands to pursue reconciliation with broken relationships? Do you pay attention to his command to do that? Do you pay attention only to the commands that are easy to follow? Or do you also pay attention to those commands that are hard to follow? What about where Jesus said that if we are to follow him, we must deny ourselves? take up our cross and follow him? Do we pay attention to this? Do we seek to apply that to our own lives? Another way we pay attention to what we have heard involves staying connected to the church. What do we do when we gather on the Lord's day? What do we do? We sing God's praises together. We sing the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. The word is central in all that we do. Why? Because we need to be continually reminded of the word through song, through prayer, through preaching, through ministering one to another, through taking communion and practicing the ordinances. We need to be continually reminded of the word. Because if we're not continually reminded of the word, we will drift away. When you gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, you are taking a step toward paying attention. You're taking that step to pay attention. And that is a good thing. We all need this. What do we do when we gather for Bible studies or small groups? We open the word together. We read it. We discuss it. We wrestle with how we need to apply it to our own lives. We're seeking to pay attention and help one another pay attention to this glorious gospel. Brothers and sisters, humbly consider how well you are paying attention to the gospel message we have heard. Remember, if you are not actively and intentionally paying attention, you are in danger of slowly drifting away. It is easy to drift. Paying attention requires that you be intentional and active. The other thing for you to consider is whether you are helping others pay attention. 
the Lord wants to use you to help others pay attention. That may come in the form of evangelism, sharing the gospel, the good news of Christ with someone who is not yet a Christian. The Lord wants to use you to help them pay attention so that they will believe and be saved. The Lord also wants to use you to help brothers and sisters in Christ pay attention. You are called to be a minister of the word. If you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. And the Lord wants to use you through his spirit to minister the word to others so that they too will pay attention and persevere in the faith. May this be true of us. May this be a picture of us. May we be a church that pays much closer attention to the gospel, the message of salvation revealed by God through his glorious son, Jesus Christ, for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which you have delivered to us. Your message has been made known to us. And so we pray that we will be those who pay attention. We pray that we will continually pay attention to the message of salvation, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to help others pay attention, both in the work of evangelism and in making disciples. We pray that we will be a church that pays careful attention together as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.